Good morning, church. My name is Will Anderson, and I am uh, the guest preacher this morning. I'm, I'm thankful to the elders and to our pastor for, for trusting me with this responsibility. Uh, men, if you, if you weren't there Friday night, you missed out. I got home, and, and on the way home, I was, I was thinking, I've, I've grown up in the church. I was a pastor's kid, and unfortunately... A lot of my experience in church is you have well-intended people trying to convince themselves they're having a good time. <laughs> you know, you go to an event, the food isn't seasoned, you watch some G-rated movie as a bunch of grown men, and then, and then later it's like, oh, such a time of sweet, sweet fellowship, guys, you missed out. I went home and I said to my wife, she said, hey, how was it? And I, I kind of took a breath, I said, it wasn't forced, which was really nice, it was just, it was like we weren't, I didn't feel like we were hanging out trying to convince each other that we were having a good time. It was just like the food was good. I always overcook fish. I don't want to, but I'm just not sanctified there yet. And, and somehow all the fish was just good. Uh, I didn't have a burger, but they were all gone. So I assumed they were good. Uh, but y'all, if, if you weren't there, you missed out. Sherman brought us a, a, a great word. Um, yeah, such, such a blessing. Such a blessing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a, a prayer for us, and then we're going we're gonna to hop right in. Lord God, I pray that this time this morning uh, would not just be about checking a box, that it would not just be about uh, showing up to, to do our church thing, but that this would be a beneficial time, that as we open your word, that you would speak to us in helpful and relevant ways. Uh, Lord God, I fully understand that I can make uh, the most relevant of analogies, that I can speak with the utmost clarity, but if your spirit is not applying it to our souls, we're just making noise. And so, Lord God, I pray that, that you would be with us this morning, challenging us, uh, preparing our, our hearts to receive your word, that we would be better equipped to be blood-bought ministers of reconciliation for the sake of your glory in the circles in which you have placed us in here in Middle Tennessee. And so, Lord God, uh, yeah, we pray for your presence. We pray for your power. We pray for your wisdom this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but, well, I, I do know about y'all. We are in a season of collective weariness. At some point over the last several months, all of us have arrived at a point where we've kind of had to accept the way things are are now the way things are. I don't know about y'all, but I spent about 18 months kind of holding my breath, waiting for it to get back to normal. And it's just been within the past couple months or so that I've realized we're not going back. I'm still reckoning with that. Oh, a couple weeks ago when, the, when they let the kids go, I wasn't ready. I was sitting over here and Felicia gets up to release the children. She says, all right, fifth graders. And they get up and run and I just start crying. And I look over at my wife. She's like, don't look at me, don't look at me. <laughs> I, I have, I have some, some COVID fatigue, COVID trauma. There's stuff that I've been through that I'm not quite ready to process yet. I know it's there, but I'm not ready for it all to come out quite yet. And so in this season where, where we're all kind of collectively 
burdened with, with weariness and fatigue and, and tiredness and burnout, I think it's important for us to be intentional about how we feed our souls. We're past the point of just white-knuckling it. We're past the point of just digging deep and holding on. I think it's important for us as people of faith to be taking seriously what does it look like for us to not just be existing, not just holding on, but what does it look like for us to flourish in our high-stress world? What does it look like for us to be ministers of reconciliation in a world where it seems like the brokenness is more in front of us every day than it ever has been? And so my, my title this morning is Christ-like self-care. Christ-like self-care. What does it look like to be caring for our souls in the midst of such a season of struggle and turmoil and weariness? And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 4. This is probably a text that, that you've heard a number of times. Uh, often in the morning, I, I go for walks um, all through my 20s. Uh, I was a not very good rugby player. And that means that as a 35-year-old, uh, I've accumulated a little bit of stiffness in my lower back. So I try to go for lots of walks. And uh, when I go for walks in the morning, I, I often listen to something called the Streetlights Bible. And it's, uh, it's, it's basically like, kind of like a spoken word uh, Bible. And I think by now they've basically done the whole thing. So I'm walking and I'm listening to scripture and I just kept putting John 4 on repeat because the Lord was speaking to me there. And, and uh, so when Chris texted me a week ago Saturday and said, hey, can, can you preach in a week? I said, man, I already got the sermon in my bones because uh, it's been, it's been uh, something that God has been feeding me with over the course of the past couple months. So we're going to hop in, we're going to read the text, and then we're going we're gonna to look around the text that we're reading for broader context and application. So uh, we're going to hop in with John chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I compete in a sport that has weight classes, and right now, I'm trying to go down a weight class, which is miserable. Does anybody get hangry? Do any of the saints get hangry? This is a, this is a safe place to admit if you get hangry. So when I started looking and, and reading through, okay, what are the different ways that I can, I can cut weight? Uh, something that kept popping up in the stuff that I was reading said, now if you cut carbohydrates, you know, bread and rice and um, potatoes and starches, if you cut that out of your diet, you're probably going to get a little irky. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll be fine. I'm trusting that this is a safe place to, to talk about this. A couple weeks ago, now I, I've been very strict about my diet as, as I'm trying to, to move down and uh, a couple weeks ago, I'd set a light at the end of the tunnel of if I'm really good throughout the week, on Sunday night, I'm going to have my favorite, which is pizza. 
And so I was really good, and on Sunday night, I'm going to have my pizza. I haven't had bread or rice or potatoes all week. And I go, uh, I buy my pizza at Kroger, I bring it home, I'm cooking the pizza, and as I pull it out of the oven, I think a demon just slapped me. Because I don't know how, but that pizza ended up upside down. And then I yelled a word that is not becoming of, of, of being a saint. And then I tried to rescue it as it's, uh, as it, now it's upside down on the front of the oven. And then I drop it again on the floor. And there was an explosion. I don't know the physics of what happened, but there is a pesto stain on my ceiling. I was so angry <laughs> that that night we're laying in bed and Erica turns to me and she's like, so do we need to talk about, maybe, maybe this is affecting you a little bit more than you thought it would. Now, I am not, I'm not starving myself because since I'm trying to compete, I'm trying to do everything that I can to maintain, you know, the good stuff and get rid of the extra stuff. So I'm, I'm eating lots of calories. I'm eating lots of veggies. I'm eating lots of meat, and it's good. My wife knows how to season. I call her my savory princess. I'm eating good, good food, but I've cut out this one thing. And what I've experienced is that I can sit down for a meal and I can eat a lot of vegetables and I can eat a lot of meat and I get up from the meal and there's something in my body that says, you ain't done yet. <laughs> I'm looking over at either the potatoes or the rice or the, the bread that my wife is eating and there's this voice inside me that says, you need some of that. The reason I bring that up is I think that there is something going on in the souls of a lot of us. In my experience pastoring and shepherding folks, something that I've seen over and over and over again is that there is a common deficiency in the souls of many believers. And right from the beginning, I, I want to lay out, I want to make it clear from the beginning where we're going. I think that that deficiency exists in the area of loving marginalized outsiders. I fully believe that loving those who are outsiders, loving those who are struggling, loving those who are in need is nourishing and sustaining for the soul of a Christian. Now, instantly, you may be thinking, oh, is, is, is he saying that we don't need to be reading our Bibles, or he's saying we don't need to be spending time in prayer? No, 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 no. I'm saying just as if, if you take your car to the mechanic, and he says, this is all locked up, there's nothing I can do about it. And you say, but I've been putting the coolant in it, and I make sure that the windshield wiper fluid is topped off. He's going to say, yeah, but you didn't put any oil in it. You're not going to turn to the mechanic and say, oh, so you're saying I don't need coolant? <laughs> no. You need multiple things to keep the engine running in a healthy manner. And in the same way in the Christian life, there are lots of things that we need to be for the sake of our own flourishing. There's lots of things that we need in order to be pursuing our own health. Pastor Eric Mason would call this a paradoxical, paradoxical principle that is pertinent for our progress. Often in scripture, there are truths that when we first look at, we say, that, that doesn't make sense. 
You're telling me that in a state of weariness, it's possible the solution is that I need to be doing something else? Haven't you seen my to-do list? I am crushed by the amount of things I have to do. I only have 24 hours in the day. I don't have the ability to add more things to what I have to do. And yet I'm here to tell you this morning that it's possible that there is weariness and fatigue in your soul because you are missing something crucial about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we're going to jump back in the text, back to John 4, verse 4. The context is you have Jesus going about his, his earthly ministry. And in verse 4, it says, now he, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. The context of Jesus' day is that he lived within a hyper-patriarchal society. And in regards to their relationship to the Samaritans, they functionally lived in what was an ethnic apartheid. There was separation and status according to your ethnic background. And so you have Jesus head into an area that most folks would go all the way around to not have to see those folks, to not have to deal with those folks, to not have to be associated with them. But Jesus not only goes through, but he stops and he starts a conversation with a woman who just because of his status as a Hebrew man, she is shocked and dumbfounded that he would even speak to her. Not only that, but in the next interaction he has with her, he brings up the fact, you know, he says, you know, go and get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband, with the implication being that she has gone through five divorces. Now, in the past, when I've heard this preached, very often pastors will bring it up as if he's, almost like calling her out, as if he's putting a finger on her sin to let her know, hey, I see all the mess. But I don't think that's the correct attitude with which we should read this. Two years ago, next month, my mom passed away. And in her absence, after her death, I, th I thought a lot about her life and legacy. My mom taught me so much about what it means to be Christ-like. She was one of those people where she could, she could put her finger in someone else's stuff in such a way that was totally disarming. See, we, we, we live in an age where there's some people who pride themselves on just saying what needs to be said, and often those people are terrible to be around. 
Because they're not thinking about sensitivity. They're not thinking about being gracious or loving. They're not even really worried about being heard. They're more concerned with what needs to be said. And my mom was someone that sat at the intersection of saying what need to be said, but also being able to be heard. She was someone that people would confess to and confide in. She was someone that strangers would be very vulnerable with. She was someone that, that folks who weren't church going, didn't claim Christ, they'd come up to her and they'd say, they'd say, Elaine, would you pray for me? And I think what they thought was going to happen is that she would take a note and then go home and then later that night, like light a candle or something and then pray for them. No, she would just grab them right there. Dear Heavenly Father. And would just go in, in a parking lot, in an office. It didn't matter where she was. She was the, the person in our family that when there was family drama, she was the default mediator because people understood she can be trusted, she's safe, but she's wise. And when I think about the legacy of my mother, it changes how I see Jesus. Because often when we read Je the words of Jesus, he seems, he seems almost gruff in his interactions with folks. But I think... I think very often for me, my impression of Jesus was shaped by people, you know, those types of people that just say what need to be said. And yet what I learned from my mother is that there is a way to say the things that need to be said, but with an inviting, vulnerable tenderness. And I think that's the type of people that we're called to be. And so I, I read this text through the lens of the type of Christ-likeness that my mother taught me, which is not to say, hey, just so you know, I see all your sin. You're not getting away with anything. But rather saying, I see all the mess, and it doesn't scare me. I see all the mess, and child, you're still loved. Because the next discourse they have, they, they move directly from that in that she brings up religious differences between the Samaritans and the Hebrew and how and where they worship. And the end of that interaction is not him saying, I'm right and you're wrong. Trust me, I'm the authority. I know what I'm talking about. You just need to listen up. But rather, she leaves with an understanding that this is my Savior. Yes, there's a distinction, but he makes it clear not only do I know all your mess, you are not excluded structurally. You are not excluded because of your gender. You are not excluded because of your past. But she leaves and she's so excited about finding this man that she runs back to her village in order to tell everyone else, you have to know who this guy is. I met the Christ. That doesn't happen if she had a, an interaction with him that verges on bullying, if she had felt shamed, she wouldn't be running back to say, hey, I met a guy who knows all my dirty laundry. Hey, I met a guy who put his finger right in the middle of all my insecurities. No. But there was something about that interaction that they had that made her so excited 
about who he was. She was seen and she was accepted, fully known and fully loved. And so part of our good news this morning is that there are no outsiders to the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that in Jesus' plan to minister to Samaria, he doesn't seek out the most influential, most powerful, richest Samaritan. But he engages with this woman who's surprised that Jesus would even greet her. He's, she's surprised that Jesus would even ask her to do free manual labor. And so, if you're here this morning and you're feeling maybe a little distant from God, maybe you're looking at, at something in your own life, maybe something you've done or something that has happened to you, our first good news this morning is that there are no structural or personal boundaries that prevent us from being loved by Christ. In Colossians 2.14, Paul says that all the things that would stand against us, he says the list with all of its legal demands has been nailed to the cross. All those things that you would look at and say, this is what disqualifies me from being loved by God, all of that has been dealt with. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus is not only okay with the outsiders, we see over and over in Scripture that he seeks them out. Something I like about the book of John is that, is that we see at the end of John 3, Nicodemus kind of sneaks in the back door after night to speak to Jesus. Nicodemus, the, the, powerful, the powerful religious leader, religious and political leader, sneaks in to see Jesus at the, in the darkness of night. We see Jesus go and seek out the Samaritan woman. Shortly after this, at the end of chapter 4, we see a, a powerful politician, a ruler, seek out Jesus to have his son healed. But we see Jesus right after this with the Samaritan woman. He goes and he seeks out a man in the temple courts who needs a healing. Those who are the outsiders, those who are pushed to the edges, that is who Jesus goes after. And so the very thing that you think stands between you and God is probably the very reason that he's coming after you. What we see as a record of wrong, Jesus sees as a stellar resume of grace. Moving on in the text, John 4, 34. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Jesus makes it plain. They show up and they say, Jesus, have you eaten? He says, y'all, I'm already full. They say, did he he pack a a road snack? I know when I've heard this this verse preached before of of my my food is to do the will of the Father, very often that's taken and then taught as a single text, and it's not, we don't wrap it in the context in which it exists. Jesus hangs out with a marginalized, excluded outsider who has a hard time even making eye contact with him. And then his disciples come back after that interaction in which he says, y'all, I am so full right now. And they say, well, what have you been eating? And he says, doing the will of the Father. Now, we can't just assume that doing the will of the Father is anything that we want that to mean. We have to assume that it means from the context of what he's been doing, it's what he's been doing that filled him up. It's, it's what he's been doing that made him experience the soul satiation that he's attempting to pass on to his followers. The will of the Father is going after folks for the sake of the kingdom. But which people? He doesn't say the harvests. The harvest is ready. Let's go reap it, y'all, and then head immediately back to Judea or Galilee. Rather, he says, the harvests are plentiful. Great. And they spend the, ne- they spend the rest of the week there in Samaria. And you have to believe, because the, the, the disciples come back, they see Jesus talking with this woman, and they're saying to each other, what does he want with her? These are the first professional folks in Christian ministry, and they're looking at Jesus hanging out with this woman saying, why is he even speaking with her? We're trying to build a movement here. Why is he talking to her? And what we see, what we see is that Jesus himself is saying, this is where I find fullness. This is where I find joy. This is where I find richness. He demonstrates which people God is interested in, which fields are ready for harvest as they head to a Samaritan village. I believe many of us experience fatigue and weariness, not primarily because we're doing too much, but but because we have filled our lives with things that are not in line with our flourishing. I'm basically incapable of standing behind a pulpit and not at some point ending up in Matthew 25. It's a section of scripture that has, has deeply shaped and change my life. In Matthew 25, Jesus is, is talk, he's talking about at the end of days when there was a separation of the sheep and the goats. And it's a passage we all know the, the, 
the, the goats come to him and, and he says, you know, or the sheep come to him first and he says, when you fed the hungry, when you met the needs of those who were struggling, when you, when you fellowshiped with the incarcerated, when you did these things for the least of these, you did them for me. And he says, now, now enter with me into eternal rest. And then he, he calls the goats and he said, when you neglected the struggling, when you neglected those who were suffering, when you pushed the marginalized further to the outside, when you didn't go visit the incarcerated, you neglected, you ignored, and you pushed me away. Depart from me into eternal darkness. When we meet the needs of the struggling, we meet his needs. When we fellowship with the incarcerated, we fellowship with him. When that which we do to the least of these, we do to him. Who are the least of these? I think the simple answer is folks who are struggling. But which ones? All of them. But what about, what about those folks who are struggling because they're dealing with the just consequences of their own bad behavior? Yeah, them too. See, I don't believe that there are biblical categories of deserving least of these and undeserving least of these. Least of these are folks that are suffering, struggling, lonely, tired, afflicted, incarcerated, and it's our role to comfort and provide. Because isn't that what Christ has done for us? While we were yet sinners, although some of us, and, I, and historically I put myself in this category, some of us assume that it's more important that we're instruments of God's justice to those who have, who have earned their punishment than it is that we are instrument of God's grace. It took a lot of work of the Holy Spirit in my heart to convict me and that I would often, I spent much of my life looking at those on the outskirts of society. You know, it's really easy to look at whoever those folks are, whichever community you're looking at and say, well, you know, the real problem is and then you highlight some deficiency of theirs that you probably know nothing about because you probably spent zero time with those people. But it's really easy to say, well, you know, the real problem is. And then explain why their suffering is just. And then to show up in church on Sunday morning and with both hands in the air, have tears running down your face singing about justice triumph or mercy triumphing over justice. The Holy Spirit had to show, show me, you love a gospel that you don't want to apply to nobody else. You love grace for yourself, but you want justice for everybody else so that you can protect your wallet. I, I, I remember there was one point where a homeless man asked me for money, and I asked him, I said, what are you going to spend it on? And really quickly, I heard the Holy Spirit go, what are you going to spend it on? As I close, I want to push into this paradoxical portion of the text that peace, 
fullness, soul satisfaction is found among the outsiders. I, I, I run a, a program that works with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals. And I also run a, a job skills program for high school age young men, most of whom are, are, come out of different situations of, of abuse and trauma. Many of them come uh, out of juvenile uh, detention. And there are absolutely days where I come home and I just don't have anything left. There are absolutely days where I am tired and worn out. There are absolutely days where it costs a lot physically and emotionally to be around people who've experienced a lot of trauma or or who are walking in their season of struggle. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But I can tell you, as somebody who has spent the last 10 years in this city intentionally seeking out those folks, that there is a soul-level satisfaction and rest and goodness that comes from being in the midst of those who've been pushed to the outside. I wish that I could break it down really clearly, but I don't have the words. I just have to tell you, I've been through it, I've seen it, and it's true. And you have to trust me on this. The question that I had to wrestle with in my heart of hearts is, is Jesus a liar? Because we, we say flippantly, if somebody's struggling, we say, hey, you got to run to Jesus. But what do we mean by that? Because Matthew 25 says that I can't run to Jesus and not run to the margins of society. If I'm in the midst of my own struggle and I want to go to where Christ is in order to find healing, I got to run to the place where he said that he is. I remember I was texting with Chris a while back, and I said, in terms of our personal devotional life, there's things that I don't understand about what we consider normal as church folks. Because if someone's struggling, it's so normative to come alongside and say, hey, brother or sister, I think you need to spend time in the word. Somebody says, hey, I feel distant from God. We'll say, have you been praying? Hey, I feel distant from God. Have you been spending time in your word? Hey, I feel distant from God. Well, you've been distant from church and community. But I can honestly say, I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, hey, I'm feeling distant from God. And, and somebody comes along and says, well, have you gone to where God said he'd be? I feel distant from God. Did you go to the soup kitchen? Because I'm pretty sure he said he'd be there. Hey, I'm feeling distant from God. Did you go to DCSO downtown? Did you go spend time volunteering in the mental health unit of the local jail? Did you spend time at the Oasis Center? Did you spend time with big brothers, big sisters? Did you spend time reading at the elementary school? Did you spend time feeding folks downtown? Did you spend time in the places where Jesus said, I'd be there? If you're weary, go to Jesus. Where is he? In the place he said he'd be. Where do you run when you're tired? Where do you run? We run to Jesus. Where is he? He's with the Samaritan woman. 
Loving the marginalized outsider is nourishing and sustaining for the soul. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to challenge us. We thank you that you love us enough to push on us. Lord God, I I pray I pray for the ministries of this church that that reach to the outsides of society, that reach to the edges, that reach to those who are experiencing a season of struggle and pray that you would bless those ministries. I thank you that, that this is a church that engages in those ministries. Lord God, I pray for folks here that are in seasons of weariness. I pray that you would help them get connected with opportunities to to love their marginalized neighbors, to love those on the edges. I pray that they would find life and fulfillment and richness and flourishing there. Lord God, I know that this is a church that draws lots of people that, that work difficult jobs working with folks who are struggling. And so I pray for all of those who are involved either in mercy ministries or nonprofits or the public school system or, or just ministering to those who, who are going through maybe addiction recovery or, or incarceration. I pray for all of those who are working directly day in and day out with struggling populations that you would give them what they need, give them their daily bread, whether it's financially, whether it's just the emotional energy they need to to love folks all day and come home and be good parents, I pray that you would sustain them. Lord God, for for those who are in a situation that would make it difficult for them to to find themselves at the the prison or at the soup kitchen, I pray that you would be highlighting for them ways that they can be faithfully supporting those who are willing to go. I pray that you would give them prophetic vision of how, how they can be encouraging and supporting. Lord God, I pray that we would be known as a church that goes and finds you where you are. That when we are in, seri- in, in seasons of struggle and difficulty, that we wouldn't just look to self-focused solutions, but that we would have the spiritual insight to look beyond ourselves, to see that when we feed others, we feed you. That when we spend time with the struggling, the lonely, the incarcerated. We spend time with you. Lord God, you say in your word that they will know us by how we love each other. And you also say that they will know us by our fruit. We pray that we would be a church that bears good fruit as we seek the growth of the kingdom of God. All these things for the sake of your glory, trusting that it is for our joy. Amen.